Hello, Eric. Hi, how are you doing, Ernie? Good. Welcome to the Great Reset Podcast Edition. Oh, this is the podcast edition. Okay. So, yes, you're being recorded for uh, discipleship purposes. <laughs> okay, well, that's a good reason if there is one. <laughs> yeah, so the, um, yeah, one of the basic premises of the Great Reset is that the wonderful thing about the Bible is you get to see the people who made our tradition and our history, uh, you know, argue about stuff and get it wrong and work together and discover that God is still good somehow. And so uh, I have often lamented that uh, we see this in scripture. We almost never see it in real life. Mm. And because we're in this scenario of everyone being virtual, it's a lot more natural to record it than if you're sitting down face to face with a tape recorder between you. Gotcha. All right. Anyway, so it's interesting that this came up because it's something I've been thinking about for a while uh, as I've been going through this journey. Um, and just to kind of lay my cards on the table, uh, I've kind of come to the conclusion that all of the institutions that make up Western civilization are hopelessly compromised and require radical reform, if not outright replacement. And that ended up sort of unexpectedly gelling with the whole Black Lives Matter critique of uh, structural racism and our institutions. And so this is something that's become kind of an emotional issue for me. And as we were chatting about it on the chat, I realized I'm getting emotional. Uh, I'm not sure if you are. And so it's better to at least have it as a phone call rather than a uh, text message interchange. Okay. Well, um, if uh, we're true to our goal of keeping this um, for the purpose of discipleship, then I think um, we'll only use the recording um, in certain ways. So that takes away some of the, you know, potential concern for the purpose of recording an emotionally charged uh discussion yeah yeah what i say is it's being recorded and we should have as honest a conversation as possible and then we decide do we publish the recording right if we decide you know i said some things here which are hard to edit out that are you know, it you know uh, wouldn't necessarily be helpful for you know especially if we mention other people in a way that's not constructive then you know we just drop the recording into the dustbin of history that's fine but i want to i want to our priority is to be as honest as possible, and if the recording doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. That's fine. Yeah. But when I've done this before in the past, it's like, well, you know, I didn't say anything inappropriate, and I think this is a good example of how to wrestle with a hard issue, so we'll keep it. So that's kind of the way we do it. Yeah. Okay, so um, that, that sounds good, Ernie. Um, so I think... I was probably starting to write these super long messages in our group chat that um, would have, you know, nobody would have time to uh, respond to it at that moment. And also, I think that Steve's or that your church service started after Steve went ahead yeah. and shared. And so a lot of people were probably, you know, focused on the church service which it, you know should be so <laughs> yeah, you're two hours ahead of that, us so you don't have that problem that wasn't um you know good timing for that but um i think when i started hearing um that similar things to what you just said that um western involvement around the world is um, all part of a colonial um, program of dominance and not only political dominance but cultural dominance I um, I felt like I had to say something about that because having uh, been a missionary I know for sure that I personally am not traveling overseas and getting involved with people in Indonesia and Thailand in order to dominate them politically or culturally 
but so that they can get a chance to hear the gospel because they are currently and have been for centuries living in political systems of dominance that have prevented them from hearing the gospel message. Um, I'm pretty sure the whole team of folks that helped to fund my involvement in that way have a similar heart in the matter. And I pray that when um, my life is said and done, that I'm not going to leave behind, you know, things that uh, cause future generations to think they've been culturally and politically dominated by me, but rather um, some real lasting changes, but changes that do reflect the gospel in action and that future generations can uh, take and can own and build on in that direction. I'm pretty sure, too, that um, missionaries in decades and centuries past have um, been involved in other cultures, or I mean in places far away from their place of origin, with a similar heart and a similar attitude, and I believe a similar long-term effect. Um, so. I wanted to speak up to that because I hear um, a lot of complaints about anything Western um, as if there's only one thing that um, characterizes all of the West, and that is cultural and um, economic and political dominance. Um, so... Yeah, that's a mouthful. I probably better give you a chance to say something. No, that's really good. No, and I appreciate you saying that so clearly. So I think it's worth, and the reason this is hard, is that there are several things which are difficult to tease apart. And as I mentioned in the, the intro uh, text was that, you know, I think what's challenging about this is that this ties into questions of identity. And things that are questions of identity it's quite painful to analytically pick them apart and say this aspect of your identity is good, this one is bad, because it feels like a holistic attack. So, for example, like, you know, kind of like our friend Steve McGriff was sharing at his church this morning about his African-American heritage. Most of the time, I am oblivious to my Indian heritage. But for some reason, when questions of colonialism come up, uh, that identity comes to the fore. And I feel this uh, unction or urge to speak into that and because i'm speaking out of that identity even though like steven i have a shared heritage doing i have very little experiential encounters with it uh, but it's hard for me to step back and analyze it because it's an emotional thing for me similarly you know you are a if i may use the term professional missionary right you built your career and your life around spreading the gospel to people in other cultures and so Anything I say that appears critical probably strikes at your identity in some way, which makes it challenging uh, to analyze from kind of a dispassionate perspective. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. So um, I, think I do think the first though that um, I am used to hearing complaints about Western colonial interests. Um, from the time I was in uh, high school, I've been hearing, you know, um, critiques that often um, I accurately identify really bad things that have been done by colonial, European colonial powers. And you can put America in that as well, because America has had a lot of involvement in countries all over the world. But uh, I myself am a person who's involved overseas, but in a voluntaristic, um, not a, an exploitive way, uh, a way that seeks to serve local peoples for the purpose of the gospel, uh, for the purpose of giving them a shot at knowing Jesus Christ. And when I find some kind of asset in my hands, like education or good medicine or knowledge about how to build an airport or a hospital, 
I, I don't know all those things, you know, but these things have been um, in the course of missions in the last century given away to other countries by missionaries as just part of the natural desire to take what you've got and use it for the good of your fellow man and to, in fact, give it away to them so that they can now own it and derive benefit from it. Um, and so some of these things, like what I just mentioned, are accurately identified as cultural good, um, with the word good meaning that there's benefit in having something like medicine or a hospital or education that you didn't have before. Um, so I feel like although those things may have uh, been developed and still bear some flavor of Western society or culture, that in general, um, those type of things um, are still a universal benefit to the people who get them and that it is um, hopefully appreciated too as part of a testimony that because my life has been impacted by Jesus, now I don't count what's in my hand and is valuable as my own, but I want to use that for the benefit of my fellow man and for the reputation of my Lord in this world. Right. So, you know, I think that's a really good point. And I think it's a really poignant one because one could argue that the Judaizers in the New Testament wanted to do the exact same thing. To they had lived thousands some... of years, to give away the, like they said, you know, hey, you know, this thing of circumcision, which used to be only for those born of Jews, has been a really powerful tool to help us remember who we are in Christ and these other traditions, you know, and you look at these unclean Gentiles who are living with all this filth and immorality, a physical and spiritual, and they said, hey, we have this thing. So I'm not saying you are equivalent to them. I'm saying that um, this was a really hard question that the early church had to wrestle with quite deeply, right? Which are the things that we are giving people are actually for their good? And which of them are uh, something peculiar to us that we don't want them to copy? And which things are maybe mixed in the middle? Right. Well, I don't know if they felt like circumcision had some kind of tangible physical benefit in the same way that antibiotics or, you know, knowledge about how to build a good road or a good sanitation in a city. Yeah. Yeah. Although, frankly, have... you, you remember... Yeah, although certainly, ironically, the, the thing that Jesus got into trouble with the Pharisees about, uh, as you know, living in some of the countries, like high, the basic clean water hygiene could do huge benefits socially and culturally. Uh, yeah, but the Jews were health. using that in a ceremonial way. It, well, it became a, yeah, so it was a thing that, you know, so what is, is that the line between what is ceremonial and what is practical is... Uh, not exactly a trivial question. I mean, there are, I, I was circumcised as a child when it was getting really PG-13, but, you know, because it was a medical benefit, it was determined at that point in time that that's what they believed. So, you know, yeah. there's all these different uh, slices around this, no pun intended. Well, <laughs> but the, you bring up circumcision, but, and that's a really, could I just make a little side note? Sure, um, go ahead. I um, accidentally, but it's not an accident in the Lord's world and plan, <laughs> Sat next to No, no, not that. Someone. That sounds dangerous. <laughs> That's something we don't do just accidentally out in the woods when we're running past some sharp tree. But um, I'm going no. to use that as the uh, title of this episode: accidental circumcision. <laughs> well, but um, so I got to be friends with a Jewish rabbi because we were seated next to each other on an airplane flight that was 14 hours long. And now we're still friends, and he invites me to come to his um, virtual synagogue during this time of COVID because I'm a student of the Bible and I read Hebrew, and um, and we're just friends. And so anyway, 
I learned something about circumcision in that if you go back and look at the prophets and the people up into the New Testament as well, um, this cry of a prophet when they see into heaven and they say, or they see an angel of the Lord, they say, woe is to me, for I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. Um, and if you remember, you know, like Ezekiel said that, and then the angel picked up a flaming coal of, of, with tongs from the altar and touched his mouth so that he would be purified. Um, and I learned in this, uh, you know, synagogue group that circumcision uh, is actually a pretty deep symbol, but I'm afraid that in Jesus's day, the Pharisees were requiring that of people, and it's actually the symbolic um, value of circumcision, like it is with baptism or another, um, you know, tradition or symbol that we use, that is what brings people close to the Lord. So the symbolic value of circumcision is that, you know, there it is um, in the center of a man's body, in the most sensitive part of his body. And if you think about a man standing there like the Leonardo da Vinci sketch, um, if you go up the center line, there's the privates, um, and then there's the heart, and then there's the mouth. And the other parts of our body, the hands and feet, the eyes, the ears, even the nostrils, are divided off to the sides. So these three items that are right in the center um, are the items that need to be um, opened up to the voice and to the uh, purposes of the Lord. So the circumcision is about being um, committed to the purpose of the Lord, and it's uh, performed in the most sensitive part of the body. Uh, and it includes this commitment to always use that part of your body according to the will of the Lord, as you must also open your heart to the voice of the Lord and always use your mouth, which is maybe the most potent part of our anatomy for making a difference in other people's lives around us um, to be dedicated to the purposes of the Lord. So if that were the understanding um, that uh, it's a symbol, a symbolic act, which is an intentional marking of the body, of a man's body specifically, uh, to uh, yield uh, our greatest sensitivity and also our greatest potence, potency over to the Lord and his purposes. Um, I don't believe it would have been the negative and exclusive thing that some of the Jewish people of Jesus' day were making it into. Let me repeat back what I heard you say to make sure I'm getting you. Is that the reason God gives us anything is to help us love him and, and love our neighbors. And that that is the ultimate relational spiritual goal of all these things. There are specific rituals and practices that he prescribes to embody that in ways that convey that deep spiritual truth, which then get embedded within cultural forms. And that what often happens is after a period of time, those cultural forms take on a life of their own to the point where they can even act to oppose the spiritual truths that God originally intended them to serve. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, I think um, <laughs> like Deuteronomy 6, um, Moses is giving the people specific ideas about how to always keep the words of the Lord on the hearts and minds and on the, the lips, meaning speak these things daily as you come in and you go out and you rise up and you sit down so that your sons and your grandsons will understand. Um, so, and so that the sojourner among you will come to understand uh, these truths. Um, it doesn't mean that we need to do exactly the things that are written there in Deuteronomy 6. It's probably a good idea to do those things, but to be creative and to shape our own environment and to shape the world around us in such a way that it always points to the Lord for 
those that don't know him yet, for our young ones who don't know him yet, and for the sojourner who comes among us and doesn't know him yet. Um, all of these symbols are for the benefit of pointing people to him. Right. So I think it's worth pointing out that there is the intent of why they were given and the intent of how they should be used. But, you know, that very passage, you know, the, I think the later prophets say, like, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, right? And there's this tension yeah. between every cultural structure we create to help us uh, draw closer to God and love our neighbors pretty much invariably also eventually ends up as a structure that gets in the way of doing that. Um, and that is the part of the curse of the fall, right? And so the reason this is poignant is to kind of close the loop back to the, you know, like, I think you've said it really well. When you are in a position where you have something that will benefit other people and you have the power to give it to them, it seems irresponsible not to give it to them, right? Right. And as you give it to them, it would be great if they understood that this is a blessing from God that came first to your hands, but it, he also meant it for them. And so now you're um, in good faith providing it to them as well. Right. So but that's it's really ideal, but... ultimately from the God who created all of us. Right. I mean, that's the intent. The problem is, well, there's a couple of challenges here. One is, have you heard the term uh, Dreyfus skill level? No, uh, I haven't heard skill acquisition. It, 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 it comes out of nursing, uh, but they use it in software and other professions where uh, seniority by itself is not a good measure of competence. There are some people who are way better than others, uh, not directly correlated with seniority. And when they study nursing, they realize that there are people who, people who are learning the rules, people who can competently follow the rules, people who can contextually apply the rules, people who actually understand the rules and people who transcend the rules. And there's this progression you have to go through in order to build that up. And what's interesting is you know, the use of understanding different levels of competence uh, in, in various skills and also why someone who's at the top of the skill level is often the worst teacher because they've totally forgotten or they despise the rules because they've transcended them, but they forget that the rules are really important for people just starting out. So generally speaking, anytime we acquire a culture, a language, anything, we go through these levels. And sometimes we stop at different points along the way. So my critique of Western civilization is that, look, these are really good forms uh, and they solve certain problems really well. The problem, of course, is once you get adopted at scale, you end up copying the forms and you lose track of the spirit. And what's worse, and you use the word universal good, and I think maybe it's worth saying, okay, by universal good, do you mean absolute good or relative good? No, I actually mean absolute good. So something like okay. food, okay, or nutrition, um, that's well, actually let's go with an food absolute first. good. Let's, let's go with food as an absolute good. Is food an absolute good? It's not... Um, is it, could too much of food be really, really bad for you? Yeah, uh, food that's, you know, tilted way, way to the salty end can give you hypertension over years. Yeah, you know, food can be corrupted in various well, ways. Corrupted. But is it corrupted or is it just content? Like, for example, when I was in India as a child, I saw glucose crackers everywhere. And the reason was is because they, people, you were really worried about having a lack of calories. So in that context, because of what they were deficient in, like loading up on calories into snacks was a really good thing. Uh, obviously, once you get to a point of saturation, this becomes a really, really bad thing, right? So things which are the good existence small of those crackers or the availability of those crackers is a bad thing in that context? Well, it's not a, is, it, is it a bad thing or a good thing, right? It is relative to the context. It can be a lifesaver and a life destroyer. So it is not absolutely good. It's relatively good, relative to where you are in, in terms of your needs and your understanding and your wisdom and how to apply it. That's what I mean by a relative good. Okay. 
Well, right? what would you say and about something like good uh, sanitation? So sanitation. Uh, so. Or the, and just knowledge, knowledge about germs. Oh, you want to get me started on knowledge? Let's go there first. Well, knowledge about right? germs specifically. Well, what, 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 uh, let's, let's go back to scripture on this one. What is it? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, right? Um, yeah, but he, in that case, is uh, speaking about a specific application of a certain kind of knowledge. The Pharisees. Really? Yes. Do you think that's not true uh -oh. in general of all other kinds of knowledge, too? Right. I don't think that. I don't think oh, really? that. Um, <laughs> How much time have you spent among higher education? <laughs> I, well, yeah, people get puffed up, but that's knowledge divorced from um, any kind of moral or ethical responsibility. Exactly. But that is precisely the point I wanted to make. To teach someone how to read and give them a Bible is not just giving them knowledge because the Bible is a, for instance, a good that um, if people take the whole good together, they will be benefited in an absolute sense. People can't well, but, be... But, but, right, but, but you talked about two different things. One is teaching someone to read and give them the Bible. The other is them actually taking the whole good together. And I mean, you and I both know people who know their Bible cold in every sense of the word, right? <laughs> okay, that, that was cute. Right? <laughs> that, yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Hold on a second. I got to ask someone about a floor covering. All right. The, um, but it's hard so, to hang wait, out in wait. the words of Jesus too long and have it remain cold. Oh, really? The Pharisees did a pretty good job of it? They weren't in the words Judas of pretty Jesus. Good job of I it. mean, they were... Judas did a pretty good job of it. Well, he they hung out around Jesus. They heard his words. He hung, hung himself because of it. Yeah. I mean, it, it didn't do him as much good as one might have expected. Right. The point is, is that, yeah, I, 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 like, I, I don't want to be pedantic about it. I agree that hanging out with Jesus is overall a good thing. And you know, I'll, I'll say that possibly the only absolutely good thing, I think Jesus would say it himself, is God. He is the only yeah. absolute good. And every other good is relative to how effective it is, is, is moving us closer to that absolute goodness, which is God. Right. The problem that I have, and, and also let me just make another point clear. When I use the word imperialism, I don't actually use it as a curse word. Like, for the most part, I'm actually grateful for Western imperialism because it's actually overall far more humane and healthy than the Hindu imperialism that India and my regions and my ancestors were enslaved under and the political and economic implications of that. So. That's why I said, you know, I think it was Dinesh D'Souza who said two cheers for colonialism. You know, I'm not going to give it the full three cheers, but, you know, compared to the alternatives, it was actually a significant step up. Okay. But there was a price to be paid for that step up. And I think the thing that uh, makes me kind of resonate with what Stephen was saying about his experience as an African American is that like, okay, there are many things that Western culture did that were good relative to the context they were in, but actually deeply unhealthy in other dimensions as well. And the, my, my chief culprit in this is education. Education is great at extracting people from their home environment and uh, teaching them a newer culture that is more successful in terms of dealing with the, the movers and shakers of this world. Um, so and it's really good at that. that Okay, but you're using that in a very institutional, contextualized sense. I mean, you know, the word can you give me an example? Would also cover what um, parents teach their little children at home when they're reading devotions together at night. Um, so okay, I so, think. So let, okay, so I can distinguish between institutional education and social learning. Okay, I think that's a fair distinction. Um. Well, go on. The formal uh, education, 
so if you were, I can, I, you know, I can be more precise. That's fair. Formal education, where there's an external form that you are trying to conform to. Yeah, which could be lots of different things. So, like, would you call Chinese Communist Party um, party member training in that same category? Sorry, my would, headphones dropped um, out. Okay, would um, well, formal education, would you say that, say, Sunday school at an evangelical Absolutely. church? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, and would you say that um, Chinese Communist Party training on how to um, control the attitudes of a society is part of that, too? Uh, I would say any nation's attempts to control the attitudes of society is very much formal education. Okay, so there's a problem when we we put um, Sunday school teaching for children at a church, at a good church. Why not? In the same bucket with, um, you know, training uh, people in things that are um, not morally grounded and not pointing towards a creator. Well, if they point towards Allah, does that make it good? Well, okay, let me say the creator. <laughs> right, so, so things that point people to God are good, and things that get in the way of people seeing God are bad. You would agree with that, right? Yes. And so, so God is the, the only absolute that point good. people to God, I think it's hard to not call that a form of education, and sure. even formal so, education in some cases. Sure. So teaching the law, teaching Moses and the prophets, teaching circumcision, those are all good things because those were things designed to point us to God, right? Or the Sermon on the Mount? Sure. Um, but, but let's be clear, right? These are all good things up to a point, right? Because okay. if you follow that, right? Because, I mean, this is, this is the pharisaical problem, right? All the good things, I mean, I call it the golden serpent problem. There's a crisis. God gives us a form that helps solve the immediate need that's killing us. And it is a good thing that God does this. And it is good that we receive it. But in my experience, every good thing that God gives us that was originally designed to point us to him ultimately becomes the thing that we worship instead of God himself. Like, I mean, this, this, I mean, this is why I feel like, like I feel a lot more sympathy but some of them never go away. I mean, there's there's generations and generations, both in the physical sense, but also in the sense of, you know, 2 Timothy 2, 2, where we um, become a disciple because somebody leads us to faith. And then we also turn around and help lead others to faith in Christ. And then they do the same. So that's a different type of generation. But um, certain things. Well, and, and that never goes wrong? <laughs> no, I'm not saying it never goes wrong. I'm just saying that certain elements of that process don't go away. So uh, disciples of Jesus will probably know the real Jesus because the Bible exists. And, and people know the Bible and people teach the Bible. Therefore, um, when we talk about generations of disciples who know um, Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, and also know his son, Jesus, who came to um, demonstrate his love in the flesh and to bring the possibility of new life to those that have put their faith in him, well, those elements, and maybe the Bible in particular, will be there, they aren't going to go away because they become corrupted um, from the process of people coming to faith and entering into God's eternal family. Let me put it this way, okay? Uh, so I think we're talking about two slightly different things and it's worth trying to see if we can tease them apart. Okay, uh, there's a difference between saying, studying scripture is useful because it helps us know God. Versus saying it's always good to study scripture because it is a holy thing. 
right? And the distinction is subtle, but it's critical, right? Well, you know, you, Scripture won't save you. God right. is who can save you. Right. Um, so Scripture without the God that it points to will be of no value. But right. it does point to God. That's um, right. So does nature. That's a feature of Scripture. So does so does all human, I mean, ultimately all human knowledge and philosophy ultimately points to God. And in theory was the I'm thing, right? You can stare at a grain of sand. Okay. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament declare his understanding. You'll go along with that, right? Well, yeah, but occult practices are encoded in books and they don't point to God. Yes. And, and they that's precisely my complaint about education. That is precisely, precisely my indictment of Western forms of education. They are deeply, deeply ingrained with the occultic practices of our Greek ancestors whom we worship in our educational systems. And it's well, come back to bite us in horrible ways. In particular, okay, the Greek so fascination with mind and platonic ideology as pure has led to us unintentionally, let me be clear, I think most of the people, if not all of the missionaries who built these institutions and gave them to us in the third world were motivated by, as much as humanly possible, a genuine sincere desire to do good. They saw the, prob the problems we were in and they gave the best they knew to us at great cost and self-sacrifice. Okay, yeah, I totally I mean, believe you've, that. You've heard of missionaries but, that packed all their possessions in a coffin because the mean lifespan of missionaries that went to Africa, for instance, was two years. And right. tens of thousands still went. Yes, and, and I don't mean to diminish that in any way. Right? I am deeply grateful for William Carey and, his, and the Amy Carmichaels who came to my hometown and shared the gospel with us. And they did extraordinary good. Um, and I'm still really good. Like, that was way better off than what we had before. The problem was, is that the models and the forms that they brought with them, the best they knew, were just, and this is kind of the whole, bringing the whole circle back to white supremacy and Black Lives Matter and all the other stuff we were discussing this morning, is that it's easy to look at other cultures and see, wow, those core beliefs, those institutions, those are deeply evil, and they're obvious to us. What I'm saying is from my perspective, I can look at the same institutions of Western civilization and say, look, these things work really well at solving certain problems, but they still have some deeply, deeply anti-God, anti-Christ assumptions about human nature, about human flourishing, about what true spirituality is, that we need to call out and critique. And that um, question is a deeply threatening one, but it's still, I think, a valid well, one. And you don't want to find yourself in the position of those that curse Abraham. So in Genesis 12:3, the Lord makes his covenant with Abraham, and he makes some promises. He also gives him some responsibility, but he also says, those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. And yeah. so we we don't want to find ourselves in the position of being one of those who curses Abraham, so to speak, by or some of the descendants, the spiritual descendants of Abraham. Um, let's call it William Carey, Amy Carmichael. We don't want to curse them or the things that they did, um, because then we would be on the wrong side of Yahweh's covenant with his people. Right. We need to honor our father and mother so that we live long and prosper in the land that God gave us. In a spiritual and a biological sense, yes. In, in every sense, I think, actually. I mean, so I bless God, you know, for all of my spiritual ancestors, you know, including the, the conquistadors and the crusaders and the Charlemagnes, uh, you know, and the councils and the missionaries and whatever, right? I would not be where I am today without them. You know, I owe a huge debt to all of them. But what I would hope 
is that like Abraham, like Noah, that they would be honored by the fact that I learned from their mistakes and avoided the temptation to idolize them above God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, if anything takes the place of worshiping God, it's no longer a good thing, to be sure. Right, and, and that's my point, is that, like, I mean, you know, it's funny that you picked on, you know, education and hospitals as kind of the great examples of what missionaries uh, brought to, to India. And, I'm like, I am literally, I probably wouldn't be alive, I certainly wouldn't be here, if not for those things. So I'm deeply, deeply grateful. On the other hand, uh, you may not have been exposed to that much of my radicalness, but I see that the metastases of our education and health systems is literally killing us as a country right now. Uh, not because the people in them are not well-intentioned. I think virtually everyone in there is deeply sincere, deeply wants to do what's best, but they are blinded by the institutional structures that they live in to the point where they are ineffective, uh, if not... Um, counterproductive in much of the things they do. And this is something that I am just marginal enough that I can see and, you know, powerful enough that I can get away with saying uh, things that people I know literally don't even allow themselves to think. Well, no, I think it's uh, quite clear that we live in a society where the cost of health care is now beyond the reach of ordinary people, or at least certain types of health care, because the cost of malpractice insurance is so high, and that's because we live in a society that worships that technology so, and so demands I'm the last person to heal every problem that they might have, and if they don't get it, they'll sue. So, Eric, I'm going to be the last person to defend malpractice insurance coming from a family of doctors, as you know. But to blame it all on the lawyers is too easy. Well, it's the people who idolize it. It's the people who but, idolize but, but, medical but, care and demand it to but, be perfect. But, but, right. And, and whose fault is that? Well, they bear some responsibility for thinking so, that know, way about it. But, 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 but let's, let's be honest. We, as a society, have set doctors up as these sort of superhuman priests. And the doctors went along yeah, with it. Of, of the god of technology. Right. And, and, and if you ever want to turn your stomach, read about doctors' unions. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of things going on. I mean, this is the problem with all of these systems we have inherited from our, you know, Greek and medieval forebears, is they're all based on this veil of secrecy. Yeah. You know, the monks, the, the professors. It's like, okay, it doesn't matter how you live your life. All that matters is you know the right facts. That to me is the worst, is the, is the greatest advantage of Western education because you can debate these ideas in an unemotional or a less emotional analytic format. It's also the most horrifying weakness of Western civilization, which has given us eugenics and you know, all these other horrible experimentations, even if you want to include Facebook you know, manipulating people's emotional state as a research project. It's part of the same extractive, dispassionate, or sorry, what's the word? Um, this is my prayer request today. Dissociation, that's my thing. You know, I can step outside and look at these things because of dissociation, but it's precisely that dissociation that makes me a threat to the unity of the body. And that is the gift and the curse that I have inherited from Western civilization is that ability to dissociate. And yeah, what shocks me is that, is that I can see clearly... You're speaking with about these things, so... Um, right, because this, I'm, like, I'm not saying that this is them, and like I am pure and right. It's like, no, I am, I am this, and y'all made me this way, right? You know, and I'm not angry in the sense of wanting to condemn you. I just wish to God that they would confess it so I could forgive you. And I don't mean to dump all of Western civilization on you, um, but if you're going to defend it, then <laughs> I think we're kind of getting ending up at that point anyway, which may not be may or may not be what you were looking for. But you see well, what I mean I about how these are, so these are, there's, these are, there's aspects yeah. of Western uh, Western civilization typically, um, at least in our day and age, is bundled with two really bad things. 
Uh, mm-hmm. One is the worship of technology and invention. The other is the worship of free markets or mammon. Let's just name it. Um, and so we know that both of these things are false gods um, and that it's true that even most churches are strongly affected by a business model for their existence in a um, economic sense. And, um, you know, it's endemic. Uh, so, yeah, I do definitely resonate with a lot of what you're saying, but I don't totally agree that those are what characterize I mean, I'm an insider of Western society, but I'm sensitive to those aspects of Western society that are onerous or that I reject and I, I try to not be bound by those things in my own life. Yeah, no, I'd appreciate that. Let me, let me just uh, try and uh, push you one step further and see if we can get here. I would argue that both of those things are absolutely true and that they've gone full flower in, you know, uh, the last hundred years, let's say, where the worship of technology, the worship of markets has just gone, you know, to insane levels. And I'll say two points. One, I'll say that, you know, this hasn't all been bad, you know, improving the material health of the world, technology connecting people to the point where, you know, random black civilians can broadcast police brutality worldwide in a matter of seconds. You know, there are many good things that have come out of these things. But I still agree with you that technology and markets are Useful slaves and horrific masters. We in line on that one. Yeah, it's a tool, and as long as it's in that place, it's very beneficial. But if it right. grows to be master, it's no longer beneficial. Right. So I would argue that the root of both of those is the Greek ideal of knowledge divorced from relationship. Yeah, I agree with you. That's very clear, right. and that's and been I, known for a long time by Greek uh, church leaders. Right, and what's ironic is that pretty much every Christian education institution that I know of um, celebrates and rewards knowledge independent of relationship. Yeah, and that's because they are formed by a society that you know rewards knowledge separated from relationship. I, I completely agree with you. Right. And with the place is that is the one sin, for lack of a better word, even if it was an unconscious one, that Western culture inflicted on India, which, to be fair, was very receptive to it because we had a detachment, Brahministic tradition that went along with it. But that, to me, is something that is, I mean, not just our institutions, every Sunday morning, it's really, I mean, that's why I'm so grateful for Zoom Church is that, uh, you know, I think I've said this before, I've been yelling for years that, you know, the church should spend less time focusing on buildings and more time focusing on relationships. And for suddenly, <laughs> for the first time in the history of the earth, everyone is forced to agree with me. Yeah, because right? they can't use buildings anymore. <laughs> right, and so people try, you know, but, you know, what's happening is like our Zoom session with Steve McGrew today, people could ask questions and make comments and like, you know, uh, it was considered normal, whereas you know, if you send a text to everybody in the church during a sermon, you know, they're going to pull you outside and have a long talk with you afterwards, <laughs> right? And so my point is, is that this issue of knowledge, divorce, and relationship is a cancer that was embedded in all of our higher educational institutions, including the ones that missionaries with the best of intentions, you know, planted in, you know, in uh, Cambridge in 1600 in the U.S. <laughs> um, and uh-huh. so on and so forth, right? It's like these were all things that were meant well-intentioned, but that's a cancer there that hasn't been recognized. And I'm going to go on a limb and say well, I think that the hot- uh, It has been recognized, Ernie. Um, I'll, I'll send mm-hmm. you some books or point you to some. Well, yeah, but, they, um... look, show me, show me who's living this out in a relationship so I can talk to them, right? Because a book critiquing it just falls into the exact same um pit right, right. Like, so like, tell me how you are actually living this out in relationship right okay i'll send you um some stuff on that because the, the introduce very people... me to someone i can talk to right that's, okay, that's so I'm what, who you need right? to talk to ernie i i don't uh-huh. know the people personally 
Mm-hmm. I don't know them personally, but I've uh, read the books, and they know what they're talking about because this Greek um, worldview and approach to empiricism and the accumulation of knowledge through empirical inquiry, the heirs of that had to repent from that in order to become Christians. Mm. And mm. so those are the people who know what you're talking about right now. Um, okay. The rest of us are just like, okay, I'm an American who has roots in a smattering of European countries, but those are the those are the formerly the colonies of this Greek form of thought. And so mm. I'm kind of with you in the same in the same boat with you in that regard, as far as the institutions that I've inherited. Um, but they're the people who had to repent from the Greek and the, well, Rome didn't really contribute much to Greek philosophy. And Except just institutionalizing it more effectively, arguably. Well, with they added uh, military might to it. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, the people that had to repent from those Greek forms of thought in order to accept salvation in Jesus Christ, they know what they're talking about in regards to this. And that's who I would like to point you towards um, because that's a voice that needs to be emphasized in our day and age um, that is really underutilized, unfortunately. All right. I think we're in alignment on that. I think I should stop here and go uh, chop up a carpet. So thank you for your time. Uh, you can reflect on it. Let me know if you're comfortable with me publishing this for the podcast, and I'll talk to you soon. <laughs> okay. I do think it's a good idea to go ahead and publish it. I don't think I sound as smart as you, but that's okay because most people don't, Ernie. Um, and uh, I pity the carpet that locks horns with Ernie Prelacher. <laughs> All right. Thank you, I think. Bye-bye. God bless her. Bye-bye.